Ephesians chapter 4, the, the notes um, for this morning's message are in the bulletin. Turn your, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. And the title of this morning's message, part 6 in our series, Membership Matters, is Biblical Church Growth. To give you a, a recap of where we've been over the last six weeks, as we've been talking about understanding, a biblical understanding of church membership, um, in our first week, we asked the simple question, is this a biblical idea? Is this something that can be found in the Bible? And, and the answer is yes, absolutely yes. That The early church had some understanding of who it was. People were added to their number. There was widows' lists. There was record-keeping. We don't know exactly how they did that, but what is clear is the church was self-aware. The members were committed. The leadership knew who they were overseeing so they could function in unity. And then, in the next three weeks, we, we try to show why that matters. Because there are specific, unique, and important relationships that exist between members, interconnected members in a body, that are not enjoyed, that do not exist elsewhere. And we talked next about our commitment to one another, that the biblical metaphors are all tight, visceral, connected realities, that of being part of a body, being being members of a body being part of a family, units of a family. And we talked about those metaphors and the importance that while we're to love all people everywhere and while we're in particular to love those who are part of the household of faith, we must love, we must care for one another. And we talked about that reality. Next, <clears throat> Al Ostrander talked about the particular responsibility that leaders, elders in the church have, not over all Christians everywhere, but that they're going to give an account for those entrusted to their care, a specific subset of the universal church, leadership will be responsible for that specific subset. And again, that requires a knowledge. If you're going to give an account, if you're a steward and trusted with something, you, you, you want to ask, okay, to whom and for whom will I be accountable? And then in the next week, Pastor Daniel talked about the particular responsibilities of the flock to the shepherds. That, that we are to honor our leaders, that we are to submit to them, but not all Christian leaders everywhere, but my leaders, your leaders. And then last week, trying to sort of recap where we'd been and deal with some answers to questions and objections, but what I want to do this week is talk about why do this at all. What, what's the end game? What's the goal? And I want to lift up as high as I can in one passage in Ephesians 4, a picture of the church working properly, this glorious picture of the church and why Christ calls us together to be a church, but a church that's growing. Now, in the recent years, the notion of church growth has been very popular. Men like Bill Hybels and, and Rick Warren publishing books like The Purpose Driven Church have all sorts of theories on how the church is to grow, and we've seen most of those theories fail miserably and flop. And so what I talk about is biblical church growth is, is the Lord's instructions on how a church is to grow, how a church is to be built up, what will cause the church to grow in a biblical, lasting, and significant sense. And I just want to read Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16, and then spend some time working through that. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that last phrase there, makes the body grow. Church growth. Here's our notion. Okay, how does this work? And how does it relate to membership? So what I want to do, here's the outline for this morning, is, is walk through this passage in three points. We've got to understand what's being taught here. Walk through the passage, understand it, and then I want to draw four points of application, specifically as it relates to this notion of membership. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the passage in three points, and then four points of application as it relates to this. Christ promised he would build, he would grow his church, and here I think we're going to have some idea of how he's going to do that. And you'll notice that our verse, verse 11, starts mid-paragraph. And really, this, this is all one section. If you go back to 4.1, the latter half of Ephesians is broken up into a series of walks. This is the first of walks. Therefore, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a worthy manner. And he'll start 4.17 with the next section of walking. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And 5.1, walk in love. And he's going to give each section a heading of walking. So this is one standalone section, 4.1 through 16. This is the walking worthy section. Moreover, verse 11 starts mid-sentence again or mid-thought again. And he gave apostles. And we say, okay, who's the he? So let's Let's go back then to verse 7. Let's go back to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then what follows in verses 8 through 10 is kind of an aside. He's going to back up what he just said by quoting a psalm. And he quotes the psalm in verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then he has to talk about this quotation from the psalm. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And then he picks up this thought again of Christ giving gifts. So his point is this, that when Christ ascended to heaven, having purchased the new covenant, having received a name, that is above every name, entering into his, his rule, the inauguration of his kingdom, well, like many kings as they ascend the throne, he gives gifts. And specifically in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And then we get this quotation of the psalm, a discussion about the significance of him ascending and descending, and the thought gets picked back up in verse 11, where Paul zooms in on a specific subset of those gifts, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And so our first verses 11 and 12 deal with these gifts, gifts of growth. And so the First, we see that every Christian, verse 7, is given a gift. The gift was given to each one of us in differing measure, 
in different significance and different function, but to each one of us was given a measurement of Christ's gift. But now, in verse 11, he zooms in and he starts naming specific gifts, and we shift from general gifts to everyone to specifically gifted in men. Verse point A, sorry, verse point A, Christ gave the church gifted men. We're now looking at individuals. He gave, it says in verse 11, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, the first grouping, the apostles and prophets, has already appeared in this letter earlier. In Ephesians, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, turn a page over to chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, or God's family, there's that language again, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, in chapter 2, verse 20, that combination, the apostles and prophets, it's referring to the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets who wrote Scripture. The point is, built upon the foundation of Scripture. Who wrote the Bible? The prophets are the Old Testament men who wrote Scripture. The apostles, or those connected with them, are those who wrote the New Testament Scriptures. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, meaning the church is built upon the foundation of the Word of God. So when he talks about prophets here, I don't think he's referring to the New Testament gift of prophecy, which we see functioning in Agabus and in others, but rather what Christ gave, these gifts he gave, first he gave us his word. In the apostles and the prophets. It's my understanding at the beginning of verse 11. But then we're going to zoom in more specifically to the next subset. To the evangelists he gave and the shepherds and teachers. Now literally the evangelists are the gospelizers. And I think my understanding again would be that this refers to the church planning missionaries. Those who went out and first proclaimed the gospel. The foundation of the church is initially those who are preaching the gospel and building the church. The gospelizers. And next, and finally in this list, and this is just a subset, there are other lists in Scripture of spiritual gifts, he talks about the pastor or shepherd teachers. And so his first point is Christ gave gifted men to the church. But I want you to notice why, because this is huge. Just read verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Point B, he gave this gift for the purpose. And the purpose of these gifted men, foundational ministries of the apostles and prophets, and then the continuing ministries of of gospelizers or church planners and, and pastors, teachers, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This ties back to the Great Commission, right? What's the Great Commission? Go into all the world, right? Teaching, teaching and baptizing. I'm misquoting this. Good grief. I expect you to quote it. Let me go to Matthew, the end of Matthew. No, the, the Great Commission is explicit. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, there's only one command in the Great Commission. Discipleize the nations. And then three participles that explain how the discipling of the nations is to be done. You've got to go. 
You've got to baptize them, which is emphasizing the gospelizing ministry of these gospelizers. And you've got to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. What we're doing here as we're being instructed, gathering together, is as much fulfilling the Great Commission as, as Frontier Missions is. It's all one commission, making disciples. You make disciples by gospelizing new converts, by preaching the gospel, by church planning. You make disciples by teaching those who are Christians to observe all that the Lord has commanded. But all of that work is ultimately done to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Notice, notice that distinction. Whose then belongs the work of ministry? The saints. That's huge. Because so often people like me are called ministers, right? A minister. When according to Ephesians 4:11, we're all ministers, right? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That word to equip is a word elsewhere used about mending nets, setting bones. And it's the notion of putting something in its right working function or order. So Christ gave the church pastors and teachers, gospelizers, evangelists, in order to help get the rest of the body in working order to function properly. Like a, like a bone that is set, like a net that is mended. That, that word for equip is used in, in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Listen to this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united, there's that word, in the same mind and the same judgment, ordered, working properly. And he contrasts that with divisions and splits. Corinthians 1.10. So there's an equipping ministry. And that's what... what Pastor Daniel and I and the other elders and the other leaders in this church are tasked with doing. Not first and foremost the work of the ministry in so much as I'm a saint, you're a saint, I have ministry to do, but it's fundamentally equipping for the body to do the work of the ministry. There's ministry for each and every one of us. So he gave these gifts and we might be questioning, okay, what is that ministry? Well, he goes on to say it at the end of verse 11, for the building of the body of Christ. What is your ministry? You, every one of us should be deeply concerned about the issue of church growth because every one of us is given a ministry, and that ministry is to build the body of Christ. Every one of us, you, me. And, and so take a moment to wrap your head around that and grasp that you have a ministry, I have a ministry, and it's to build the body of Christ. Okay, next point. To what purpose? To what end? What does building the body of Christ mean? And in verses 13 to 14, he gives us what that means. First, positively and negatively. It's this, not this. Until, he says, we all attain to the work of ministry. I'm sorry. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what is this goal? What is the purpose of church growth? Because in some cases, people think it's just numbers. In the whole church growth movement, church growth was measured by how many people you were taking in. And, and churches and megachurches would boast of their attendance. That's not the measurement here. It's not numerical. 
What is the purpose positively stated? He says it right there. Until the measurement is until we all attain or arrive at the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What does it mean for a church to grow? It means first and foremost that the the church is growing in unity of faith and in knowledge of the Son of God. It's not a growth numerically, but it's a growth in maturing. The blanks here. Positively stated, united and mature. Point two, knowing Christ and his word. Really, there's four things listed here. The unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and then metaphorically to a mature manhood. And fourth, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But the two you can wrap your hands around, the two that are clear, are this unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And then he says it metaphorically, a mature man, and then in this sort of fulfillment of Christ and his body becoming like Christ to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So get this, church growth is not fundamentally measured in numbers. It is measured in unity and knowledge and maturity and Christ-likeness. That's what it means to build the body of Christ. That's what it means to build the church. Our church is growing if people are more united in the faith, if people are knowing Jesus Christ and his word more fully. Our church is growing if we are becoming more mature, more like Jesus, no matter what our numbers are. And that notion of a mature man is, is the picture of a corporate growth. This isn't individual growth. This is corporate growth. He is earlier, go back again to chapter 2, referred to the Christ, the, the church, as a new man. Look at, look at verse 14 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. The church is this new man. So he's talking about a corporate growth. This is not an individualistic growth. This is a corporate growth. One mature man, one mature church. That's what he's viewing. And he says it negatively. What, what does it mean to be immature? He says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So in contrast to a mature man is this unstable child, no longer, therefore, unstable children. So positively, we're united and mature and solid in our knowledge of Christ. Negatively, we're, we're not growing if we're unstable children. Unstable, tossed to and fro by doctrine. You know, a new doctrine comes out, a new Christian bestseller comes out, a new, a new video comes about, and the church gets divided, gets confused. A mature body is sound in the truth, sound in Christ's knowledge, sound in the word, and united together. And so he says it negatively. No longer unstable children, and no longer easily deceived. Tossed to and fro, he writes, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So get the contrast. 
Positively, you've got a unified body. You've got one mature man. You've got unity of the faith. We're believing the same thing. We're saying amen together. We're, we're singing together. We're acting with one voice. We're growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and his word. We're growing in the image of Christ together, corporately. Contrast that with this, this you think of a styrofoam cup in the middle of a, of a windstorm in a lake getting knocked to and fro about. If you've ever seen that. And, and you're unstable, children, following every new wind of doctrine, every new thing that comes out. Church growth is about this united, mature, knowing the word, knowing Jesus Christ, looking more and more like Jesus Christ. That's how church growth is measured. And track that all back. Paul is saying that Jesus gave gifts to each and every one of us. He gave not just gifts, but gifted people. And the reason he gave the gifts, track the logic, is so that those gifted men can equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, which is the building of the body of Christ, which is measured by how united in faith, how knowing of Christ and his word, and how looking like Jesus Christ the church is. That's, that's the point. That's the point. You and I have ministry. The ministry is the building of the body of Christ. We measure our success on, not on a scale of numbers, but of unity, of faith, knowledge of Christ and his word, maturity. And then he gives us in verses 15 to 16 the method of growth. Okay, how then? How do we do this? How, how, how is this goal achieved? How do we utilize our gifts? How do we do this work of the ministry? Read verses 15 and 16 with me. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I love this. How is it done? How is growth achieved? Speaking the truth in love to each other. As the body grow, it grows when we speak the truth and love to each other. Literally, it's truthing. It just takes the, the, the word truth and turns it into a verb. Paul does that a lot. We just truth each other in love. Truthing. That's how the body grows. And this gives us some idea of how to be looking at these gifts. If you're wondering, well, what's my gift? What's my giftedness? Um, there's a list in the scripture of the gifts, but what they nearly always share in common, not all of them, but almost nearly all, is they have to do with speaking. Speaking words of encouragement, admonishment, comforting, praying for, stimulating each other to good works, confessing our sins. It all involves words. Nearly all of our ministry is, is involved in words. Words spoken to one another in different contexts. Now, if you remember from a few years ago, we went through this book, The Trellis and the Vine, and the authors of the trellis and the vine were trying to make a distinction about trellis, which they would view as structures and programs. Trellis holds up a healthy vine. A vine needs a trellis to hold it up. But, but the trellis is there for the vine, for the function of the vine. And the vine, they're saying, is ministry, real ministry. And here's how they define that ministry, which is exactly in agreement with Ephesians 4. The author writes this. Growth happens only through the power of God's word as he applies his word to people's hearts. That's the way people are converted. That's the way people grow in maturity in Christ. We plant in water, 
God gives the growth. We speak God's word to someone, and the Spirit enables a response. This can happen individually, in small groups, in large groups. It can happen over the back fence, over dinner, over morning tea, at church. It can happen in a pulpit or on a radio. It can happen on a patio. It can be the formal exposition or study of a Bible passage or someone speaking some scripture-based truth without even referring to the Bible. However, despite the almost limitless number of contexts in which it might happen, what happens is the same. A Christian brings a truth from God's word to someone else, praying that God would make the word bear fruit through the inward working of the Spirit. That's vine work. Everything else is trellis. What's evangelism but speaking the truth to your neighbor in love? What's, what's parenting but speaking the truth in love to your children? What's being... What's encouragement? Speaking the truth in love. What's biblical admonition and correction? It's speaking the truth in love to someone, calling them to repentance. What's comforting? But speaking the truth in love. What's intercessory prayer? But speaking the truth in love. Nearly everything we have to do of significance for and to one another can be boiled down to this right here. Speaking the truth in love. That's the ministry we have. In, in, in limitless contexts, Speaking the truth and love to one another. That's the ministry that we have. That's how this building up occurs. And it doesn't just leave that there. But notice next, this also only happens when, and here's the blanks, point B, each and every joint is working properly. Rather, he says, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Before, he was viewing our growth as a corporate growth, but now we look at the individual. And Paul says this only happens, this growth only happens when each and every part, according to the measure of its gift, according to Christ's grace, gifts to each member and each and every part is functioning properly. When that happens, when you and I and everyone else is, is using our gifts that God has given us by His Spirit and we are speaking the truth in love and we are all working one at the same time, then and only then does the body build itself up in love. Point C. Then the body builds itself up in love. Now, of course, this doesn't happen outside of Christ. Paul stresses the fact that this can only happen in Christ. As we grow in the body, look at the end of verse 15. We grow up in every way into him who is the head from whom the whole body joined and held together. So the, the logic is this. These, we're only able to do this because of the gifts Christ has given us. We're only able to to be unified. We're only able to grow in maturity. We're only able to grow in the faith as Jesus Christ empowers us. But when we do this properly, we actually are building ourselves up in love. And that's, that's the whole point. Why did, why did Christ give spiritual gifts? Why did Christ give gifted men? Why did Christ give the apostles? It's all ultimately headed to this. This is the end game of the church on planet Earth. The end game of the church on planet Earth is that all of us would be ordered and functioning properly, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love to our neighbor as the church grows, as more Christians get added, and speaking the truth to those who are Christians as we grow in the knowledge and the unity of the faith. That is 
ultimately the end of all things on earth for the church. That's why you and I are here to take part in this ministry, to take part in this work. There's nothing more important on earth than, than buying into and embracing God's purpose for us, which is to serve the church in building the church by speaking the truth and love to our neighbor, speaking the truth and love to each other. That's how the church grows, and that's, that's what we're here to do. Which brings us then to, okay, how then does this all relate to membership? Four points, and, and we'll move on to communion. Four points to consider. One, I've already said this, but this means then that you have gifts intended for the local church. You, each and every one of you, every one of you has gifts intended for the local church. We see that in Ephesians 4, back in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we've each been given a gift, and then Paul picks that notion up again in verse 16, from whom the whole body, working together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. But that word for measure is in there, even though the ESV doesn't bring it out. Literally, from whom the whole body, holding together and united through every joint of support, according to the working in measure of each single part. So gifts were given in measure, and this growth only happens when each member is exercising its gifts according to the measure it was given, speaking the truth in love. You have gifts intended for the local church. Point two, you have ministry in the local church. All ministry we do ultimately finds its fulfillment in the Great Commission, the, the growing of the discipling of all nations, which is to say the growth of the church. Whether you're doing ministry, speaking the truth and love, evangelizing your neighbor, that person, if they come to Christ, will become part of the universal body of Christ, the church. In short order, they should get connected with the local church, start using their gifts, and this process continues. Ultimately, ministry has as its view the building of the body of Christ. And if you're involved in ministry and it isn't ultimately pushing through and seeing that, you're, you're short-sighted. All, all ministry, ultimately, is, is funneling into this. It's back in, in verse, verse 11. He gave those gifts so that the, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is the building of the body of Christ. The building of the body of Christ through conversion and evangelism, the building of the body of Christ through teaching and maturing. You have gifts, and you have ministry. And the gifts are for the church. The ministry ultimately relates to the church. Point three, you have weaknesses only met by the local church. You have weakness only met by the local church. This is implied by the fact that there is a need for equippers, people to equip. We need each other. You see, and this is, this is where it can rub up against American individualism. America was built upon this notion of the independent, self-reliant, captain of my own ship. The notion that we need other people, that I need you guys, and you guys need me, and we all need each other, is sometimes foreign to us. You see, if, if simply you and Jesus and your gifts were sufficient, 
he wouldn't need, in verse 11, to give the church anything to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The saints would all be fully equipped. But the very fact that we need equipping, the very fact that you and I, I need equipping just as much as you guys do, means we need each other. We need the church in order to function properly. If these gifts are going to be used properly, if they're going to be lived out properly, we need each other. Not only that, the ministry is speaking the truth to each other. So I can't fulfill my ministry without people to speak the truth to. So I need you and you need me both to help equip and center and rightly align our gifts, but to do the service too. We have weaknesses only met by the local church. I've quoted this passage before in Hebrews, but another weakness is is our potential to stray. And Hebrews 3 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort each other every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, one of the ways that you can speak the truth and love to me, and I can speak the truth and love to you, is to guard ourselves from any drifting. That's why a little later in Hebrews 10, the author writes, let us continue to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the ways that we equip each other is we remind each other, hey, there's work to be done, there's ministry to be done, there's service to be done, there are needs to be met, there's encouragement that needs to be given, there's truth that needs to be proclaimed, there's admonition and rebuke that needs to be lovingly given, there's prayers that need to be made. And we we encourage each other, the author of Hebrews says, giving thought to how I can stir other members of the body up to love and good words, encouraging them all the more as we see the day drawing near. We need each other. Brings us to point four. You have gifts, you have ministry, you have weakness, point four. You must be united to the local church in order to grow and mature in Christ. You must be united to the local church in order to grow and mature in Christ. I want you to see that in this passage. The growth happens corporately where it doesn't happen at all. The growth happens corporately where it doesn't happen at all. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. An individual cannot have unity of faith, right? Only a group can have unity of faith until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man or manhood, not mature men, not mature individuals, a mature man. That man being the church, a mature church. This is a corporate maturity. This is a corporate unity. This isn't individual. Individualism comes up in verse 16. Here, it's corporate. One new man, mature. One unified body. Keep going to verse 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we grow in every way into him who's the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Either we all grow together or we don't grow at all. 
What this means is if, you, if you've thought to yourself or you know Christians who think, I don't need the body, I can just listen to sermons at home, I can just read books at home, I'm just going to mature on my own. Whatever you're doing, you're not maturing. Church growth, church maturing happens corporately. Bodies grow together. Oh, you might know things, be able to quote things, recite things. Whatever you're doing, you're not growing in maturity in Christ. We grow together. This passage makes it clear. Now, it only happens when each individual is doing its part, when each individual is functioning properly, but then we all grow. The body builds itself up in love. We must be united to the local church in order to grow and mature. And that, that's what ultimately brings us to this issue of, of membership. How can that happen? How can that picture, that wonderful picture in verse 16, where every joint's functioning properly, where, where every part's working, where the leadership is equipping the joints, aligning them properly, the body speaking the truth and love to itself, if it doesn't know who itself is? How can we say that every joint is working properly if we don't know who every joint is? Now, I'll use an analogy. It's a sports analogy, so I know I'm taking a dangerous move here. But I want you to, to imagine the difference of, of a sports team, a baseball team. And there are some leagues where just whoever shows up to play ball shows up to play ball. And just, okay, we got a game on Thursday, and whoever shows up shows up, and we'll figure out who's going to play what positions, where, when, and how. And whatever that team is, it might be a fun team, it might be a, a happy team, it's probably not going to be a very well-organized and highly functioning team. Teams tend to work a lot better when, when the coaches are training and people are, are figuring out what they're good at. Are you good as a catcher, or as a pitcher, as a first baseman, as a shortstop? See, I've been studying up here. Um, and, and you figure out what your, where your gifting is. You know, I, was, I found out when I did Little League that I was really gifted for, for right field. I didn't know, they, and they figured that out really quickly. I must have been really amazingly good at right field because they knew right off the bat, you're due for right field. Um, that's all, hey, I'm not, trying to bra- I'm not trying to brag, but I'm just saying. Some of those people, they had to figure out what positions they knew right away. Jeremy, right field. <sighs> but sports teams tend to do a lot better when, they're, when, when there's organization and training and equipping, and, and, and there's a commitment so that you can count on. These people are showing up to practices because at the practices is where the training and the equipping happens. Likewise, I think the church is going to function a lot better when, when we're committed to each other and we know we're committed to each other. When we know we can count on each other and people say, here I am, coach, you know, put me in, give me the ball. Well, that's, that's basketball, isn't it? I don't, I, see, there's the, the weakness of the metaphor comes down. The metaphor, though, is also weak in another sense. You see, if this is just a sport, if this is just a game, then what's really at stake? The glory of winning, the humiliation of defeat, But a little bit later in Ephesians 6, Paul doesn't use a sports analogy. He uses a warfare analogy. And make no mistake, our enemy is organized. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And our enemy wants to slaughter and destroy us. Perhaps a better analogy might be that of war, an army. And you can ask our our brothers and sisters who served that an army doesn't function very well without some sort of organizing principle, without understanding, okay, who's in the platoon, who's out of the platoon. An army needs to be self-aware. So to recap, the church growth is a matter for every one of our concern. 
Church growth is only going to happen when we are all functioning properly, when we are all organized and using our gifts, speaking the truth and love to each other. But when that happens, something wonderful happens. We grow. We mature. This is, this is what we're passionate about. You wonder, okay, why are the elders, why is Pastor Daniel, Pastor Jeremy talking about church membership for six weeks? Because we want this to happen. And we think a better understanding of who we are, a better understanding of our commitments and relationships to each other is a necessary step in better fulfilling this wonderful picture of Christ's growing church. Well, let's pray now as we move into a time of communion. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for each other. We thank you for the body of Christ, that you have not left us as orphans, that you have not left us alone in this world. And we thank you for each other, for the encouragement we receive, for the prayers on our behalf, for the correction when necessary, for it's just the blessing of, of not walking this life of faith alone. We pray now, Lord, as we together celebrate your table, as we together announce that we are one body, we are one loaf, we are one body, that that declaration would be true, or at least the true recognition of the desire of our hearts. And so, Lord, help us to honor the memory of what was done on our behalf Help us to celebrate the Lord's death until he returns in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name, amen. As I call the men forward, I want to remind us of Paul's words to the Corinthians. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that as we remember the death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would reveal to us the sin of our hearts and that you would purify us from that. We come to you not because we are righteous. We come to you because we know you are merciful and that you will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We pray that you would reveal that sin to us and attend to us as our merciful Savior. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As the bread and the drink are passed, take this time to judge yourself truly, to confess your sin and submit yourself to the Lord's word.
Let's pray together. I'll give you a moment to pray silently and I'll close in a minute. Lord God, we are unworthy of the sacrifice that was made. No one earned what Christ gave. And we praise you for your mercy. Lord, we see the sin that is in our hearts. We see the pride. We see, Lord, how wicked we're capable of being. And we cry out to you, forgive us, cleanse us, and set our feet upon a straight path. We pray that you would do this not only for our own good, but for your glory. That this world, that those around us might know what a great Savior you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As I invite the worship team up for our closing song, please pass the cups to the center aisle. We'll be singing the gospel song which is a simple reminder of Christ's work and what he came to do. And let me just remind you that